All right, please open your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Mark 10, 32. A couple of weeks ago, Colton called me and asked if I could preach this week, since he and Katie were looking forward to some time away on vacation, and he told me that the text for this week would be this last part of Mark chapter 10. So after he called, I went straight to my library and pulled down all the commentaries I had on the, on the Gospel of Mark, and I started reading. But when I picked up this one rather large two-volume commentary on Mark, and I turned to that section at the end of chapter 10, or at least where that section should have been, it wasn't there. It was missing. In other words, in, in that commentary, it went right up to Mark 10, verse 31, and then it went right to chapter 11. So in other words, the last 21 verses of Mark 10 were just, were just missing. I thought, well, that's kind of strange. Maybe there was some printing error or something in this commentary. And then I read the fine print, and it seems that the author had decided to take this text and move it to the preface of the commentary on Mark, because in his mind, this text was the heart. It was the, it was the primary, most important thing in the book of Mark, um, and so he put it first. So Colton, thank you for allowing me to preach on what some believe to be the very heart of this wonderful and God-breathed book. Our text for today picks up with Jesus and his disciples on the road. They're heading toward Jerusalem for Passover and what will be Jesus' last week on earth. And you'll notice that this text is, is clearly divided into three distinct sections or separate stories or events. And our task today will be to figure out why Mark, guided, of course, by the Holy Spirit, included each one of these stories. So in the first section, Jesus, again, is telling his disciples that he will be turned over to the Gentiles to be killed. In the next section, we read a story that's frankly kind of hard to believe. It's about James and John making a power grab. And then in the final section of, of chapter 10, we read about the one last healing miracle in the book of Mark when blind Bartimaeus receives his sight. So let's pick up the reading in Mark 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See where you're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So this is now the third time in the book of Mark, that we've heard Jesus explain to his disciples what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. But this time, he's even more explicit than he's ever been before. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. He's going to be delivered to, to, to the Jews, and then they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they're going to flog him and kill him, and then on the third day, he's going to rise. Now, I've read this story 
of the crucifixion in all four Gospels hundreds of times, and I'm sure you have too. And I've always heard that the reason that Jesus was handed over to the Romans is because the Jews wanted him dead, and yet only the Romans had the power, the legal authority, to execute a prisoner. And that's true. So I never really thought much more about the reason it happened that way, but what we just read is like so many other scriptures that that we read, and we completely miss part of the significance of that scripture that we read, partly because we're 21st century Gentiles, generally, and we live in a culture that's so far removed from first century Palestine. But really, our greater problem is that we don't know the scriptures as well as we should. When Jesus said those words, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, his Jewish disciples, who did know the scriptures, had to be appalled. Being delivered to the Gentiles was the worst conceivable form of humiliation for a Jew. For these disciples, it would have been just unthinkable that their rabbi would ever be handed over to the Romans. But there's even more significance in Jesus being handed over to the Gentiles than just abject humiliation. In Leviticus 16, we read about the Day of Atonement and what God commanded the Israelites to do on that holiest day of the year. And that, in the climactic moment of what was a rather lengthy ritual on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of a goat, we call it the scapegoat, to symbolically transfer all of the iniquity of the people onto the head of that goat, of that innocent animal. And then that scapegoat would be driven outside the camp, outside the covenant community of Israel. And that was the picture of redemption that God painted for his people thousands of years earlier. And so for a Jew, being delivered to the Gentiles is to be driven like that goat outside the camp, outside the covenant community of Israel. And that's exactly why Jesus had to die at the hands of the Gentiles. In that moment, God was fulfilling the picture of redemption that he had painted in Scripture and that the Jews had acted out year after year for hundreds of years on the Day of Atonement. And just like that scapegoat, Jesus would be driven outside the covenant community of Israel with all of their sin and our sin laid on his head. But even though the disciples, back to Mark 10, even though the disciples were absolutely appalled at Jesus' words, they once again didn't understand. They didn't understand why this had to happen. And we know that from Luke's account of the same event. In Luke 18, we read, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And we'll soon find out that there was a lot they still didn't understand. But let's go back to that interesting comment that Mark makes at the beginning of the section. In verse 32, he says they were amazed. Why is that? Why would they be walking along in amazement? I don't think this reference to amazement has anything to do with all the miracles that that they had seen him perform 
although they had certainly seen many things to be amazed at. I think in this context, they were amazed and frightened because Jesus was resolutely headed directly for Jerusalem, into the lion's den, the most dangerous place on earth for Jesus of Nazareth, and that's where he was going. But as we read this account, this is interesting, we see no evidence whatsoever that the disciples were trying to stop him. He had just told them what was going to happen, but they didn't try to stop him. They walked along in silence and in fear. But if you were to crawl inside their heads that day, you probably, probably would have heard them thinking something like this. Hey, Jesus, you know, if... If that's what they're going to do to you, you know, I know a nice little hideout up here in Galilee where they'll, they'll never find you. You're, you're going the wrong way. Let's just use some common sense here, please, Jesus. We've seen you stop a raging storm with just a few words. We know that you can stop this nonsense. I'm sure that's what I would have been thinking if I'd been with them on the road that day, but they didn't say anything. Why not? Why didn't they try to stop him? Well, if you'll recall, Peter had tried that once before. We read that back in Mark chapter 8. If you'll recall, on that occasion, Peter pulled Jesus aside and tried to rebuke him for predicting that he would be killed in Jerusalem by the Gentiles. Can you imagine that? Peter had the audacity to rebuke the Son of God. And remember what happened. It's in Mark 8.33. Jesus instantly rebuked Peter for trying to change his mind, for attempting to undermine the very purpose for which he had come to this earth. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's what he said. Jesus called Peter Satan because Satan had tried the very same tactic. Remember that time in the wilderness after Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights? Satan's temptation was just like Peter's. Jesus, come on, you really don't have to go through with this. Just stop this nonsense and all that pain and misery will never have to happen. So no, the disciples may have been confused, but they weren't about to try and stop him now. He had that look. He had a mission to accomplish. And they knew it would be futile to interfere. Jesus was deliberately heading toward his own execution. He would be the Passover lamb slaughtered for the sins of the people, and he would be the scapegoat. So he had to get to Jerusalem in time for the feast. The disciples had spent most of every day for three years with him, and yet they were still amazed at this incomprehensible level of determination. So why does Mark tell us this story? I think he tells us this because he wants us to know that we have a Savior who was not a victim. He was not a victim. He was not a martyr. He intentionally, lovingly, and courageously laid down his life for his sheep, for you and me. And just like that scapegoat, it was our sin that he carried with him outside the camp, and to the cross. And that should always amaze us, too.
So let's pick up the text again in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that their mother accompanied them, and it was probably she who did the talking on their behalf. Back to verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, the other disciples, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. You think? And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If this story sounds familiar to you, it should. This narrative is structured almost exactly like a similar event we read about in chapter 9. It's really interesting. Jesus first tells them what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. Then the clueless disciples begin to argue about who is the greatest. Jesus then teaches them about being a servant. And in that case, he put his arms around a child and described to them what humble service looks like. So these two parallel stories in chapter 9 and now in chapter 10, both set in the final weeks of Jesus' life, tell us a lot, I think, about what was on Jesus' mind during those last weeks that he had on earth and what he wanted his disciples to learn before he left them. And they still had a lot to learn, as we can tell from this text. In fact, if you were one of Jesus' disciples and you were walking along with your master who's obviously under a lot of stress, marching deliberately into the hands of those who want to kill him, and you wanted to do the one thing that could possibly make his burden even worse, you would have had a hard time topping what James and John just did. They not only demonstrated their utter lack of understanding of Jesus' purpose, they also showed how very far they were from becoming like their master. Can you imagine how that must have hurt Jesus? He had spent three years teaching them how God's desire is that we walk in humility and that we devote our lives to the service of others. But James and John, two of Jesus' inner circle, his most intimate friends, were not at all interested in foot washing. They wanted glory and honor and power. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory, they said. 
Of course, we would never do anything like that. Of course not. Or would we? How many times has the Lord's church been ripped apart because of selfish ambition? It's so easy to point fingers at James and John, how shallow and greedy and self-centered they were. We can point fingers because we rarely stop to look into our own hearts. You see, on the surface, we don't see ourselves that way. I'm not that kind of alpha person. I don't need to be the one that gets noticed. The back row is fine for me. Really? How often do you stop to ask yourself why you do the things you do? Would you do them if no one noticed or would ever give you credit? I think very few of us would ever ask to sit on a throne next to the king of the universe. We're satisfied, at least for the moment, with a little polite applause from the people around us. But our dirty little secret is that we're no different than James and John. We're more interested in our own glory than the glory of the Savior. And perhaps I shouldn't speak for you. That may not be a problem for you. But I know I struggle with it every day of my life. Can you just imagine how lonely Jesus must have felt at this moment that we read about in Mark chapter 10? He has only a matter of days left on this earth. And his closest friends and disciples are not only clueless, they're blatantly selfish. He's marching to his death, and they're arguing about who will be the greatest. We may want to place all the blame for the suffering Jesus endured on those evil Pharisees and Jewish leaders who wanted to see him killed. But I think in this moment, his disciples contributed just as much to his suffering as the Jewish leaders and the Romans did. So why did they want those positions of honor to sit at Jesus' right hand? Was it just a function of their culture? Is that an excuse? Yes, as Jews, they were immersed in an honor culture that may be difficult for us to understand. And yes, the Greek culture of their day considered humility the lowest of the virtues. But there's more to it than that. Was it just a natural longing to live a life of significance? We all want to matter, to be relevant in this world, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's the way God created us. But their request goes far beyond being a, a, a desire for significance. You see, that's how Satan works on us. He takes that virtue, that longing to be significant, and he distorts it. He tempts us to climb the ladder and dominate the people in our way. And that's what the leaders of the Gentiles did in Jesus' day. That's what James and John were trying to do. And that's what we still see so often in our day, even in the Lord's church. But Jesus wouldn't have it. It shall not be so among you, he said. I think that statement by Jesus is absolutely chilling. 
Note that he didn't say, look, guys, you know, I would really prefer that if you didn't act like those Gentile leaders, just, just please don't try not to do that. That's not what he said. He said, it shall not be so. I think what Jesus is saying here is, I will not allow my church to be polluted by those who would put themselves on my throne. If you're going to go down that path, you will taste my discipline. I will send you to the desert for as long as it takes. It shall not be so. And why would he say that? Because he loves us. And because he will not share his glory with anyone, nor should he. And speaking of suffering, let's return to those words Jesus used when he patiently answered James and John. He said in verse 38, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? See, in Scripture, a cup of wine was used as a metaphor for the wrath of God's judgment. Remember Jesus' words in the garden. He said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he also speaks of being baptized. And What's that about? The baptism Jesus mentions here in this text isn't the sacrament of baptism that we participate in as believers in the Lord's church. Here, Jesus is saying, I'm about to be baptized, flooded with the fury of God's wrath. James and John, is that what you want? Can you do that? Could they? The answer, of course, is that no one could drink the cup that he drank. The perfect, sinless Son of God is the only one who could ever drink that cup. But praise God, we will never be asked to drink the cup that he drank, but he did tell James and John that they would drink from the cup, although in a different sense. And I think in these words to his disciples, he's making the same promise to you and me. He's telling us that we can expect to suffer as we're being made more like him. If our desire is to be more and more like Jesus, we will be asked to suffer, to be reconstructed in the image of our Savior. It's only because he loves us and desires our sanctification that we will all spend time in the desert. And for some of us, mercifully, those times are brief, for others, it never seems to end. And now I'd like to focus for a moment on that last thing Jesus said in this teaching moment with his disciples. This is the verse, verse 45, that some say is the key verse in the entire Gospel of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I want to focus on that word ransom. We all have an idea, I think, of what the word ransom means. Years ago, back in the 70s, if you're old enough to remember, there was a flurry of airline hijackings where terrorists would hold the passengers hostage until their demands were met, until the ransom was paid. And if the government would cave in and meet those demands, the passengers would be set free. These days, 
we're more accustomed to cyber threats, where large corporations will have their data held hostage with ransomware. And again, if their demands are met, usually millions of dollars, uh, their data will be set free and the company can continue with its, its daily routine. But when Jesus says he's giving his life as a ransom, we dare not misinterpret what he means. The question we should be able to answer is to whom is he paying the ransom? One of the most egregious heresies in the history of the church is the notion that God was paying a ransom, the life of his only son, to Satan because Satan was holding the Lord's people captive, captive to sin. May we never, ever engage or demean the sovereignty of God with such a salacious thought. Let's be perfectly clear about who's in control of this universe. Jesus was not sacrificed to placate Satan. Jesus crushed Satan's head in total victory. Satan does not sit on the throne. God does. Jesus' life was a ransom for sure, but it was a ransom paid to God the Father to satisfy His justice. We sang about that this morning. Jesus paid a ransom to buy our freedom, our freedom from the wrath of God. Now back to verse 43. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember that for some, this is the key passage in the entire Gospel of Mark. It's the heart of of this wonderful gospel message, and it's a paradox. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. Doesn't seem to make sense. That's, of course, why we call it a paradox. What he's trying to get his numbskull disciples and us to understand is that because Jesus himself came to serve rather than to be served, we must do the same if we're going to be like him. If the one who created the universe came to serve the lowliest people, how can we do less? Verse 45, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. 
So the first question we should ask here is, why is this story here? This is the last healing miracle recorded in the book of Mark. And some have pointed out that this central section of the book of Mark has two bookends. The section starts with the healing of a blind man in Mark 8.22, and it ends with this healing of a blind man, Bartimaeus. And everything in between these two stories about blind men is focused on seeing who Jesus is, the Messiah of God. But is there anything really special about this particular blind man? And I have to confess, I had never understood the significance of Bartimaeus until I spent so much time immersed in this text over the last couple of weeks. Bartimaeus is now one of my heroes. And here's why. If you could try to imagine for just a moment what life as a blind man would be like. Bartimaeus has lived year after year in total darkness. He's totally dependent on the generosity and the kindness of others for his meager existence. And then one day, sitting there on the roadside, the roadside that's been his home and his prison for years, he hears that Jesus of Nazareth, the miracle worker, is coming toward him. He is understandably desperate, and he does what any one of us would have done. He cries out for mercy, and he will not be silenced. But note how he addresses Jesus. He cries out, Jesus, son of David. Now, that may not seem that unusual to you and me, since we read that term throughout Scripture. But this is the first time that expression, son of David, is used in the book of Mark. And it's the only time anyone other than Jesus used it. And why is that important? Because this statement by Bartimaeus makes, or marks a turning point in the life of Jesus. If you think about it, up to this point, Jesus has mostly refrained from telling the world who he really is. He performs a miracle, and then he tells everyone not to tell anyone. But now, as he's approaching Jerusalem, he removes the veil, and he begins announcing to the world that he is the Messiah of God. And that phrase that Bartimaeus used, son of David, is an expression that means Messiah. Bartimaeus is acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah of God. And up to that point, no one else has had the audacity to make that claim in public. Bartimaeus did. And when Jesus heard that cry for mercy from a man who understood his real identity, he stopped. The Son of God stopped in his tracks. The Son stood still. And he asked to have Bartimaeus brought to him. Now, we started this section by asking, why is this story here? I think the answer is in verse 51. Jesus asks Bartimaeus exactly the same question that he had asked James and John. Did you catch that? In verse 51, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And here's the point I think Mark is trying to make. In response to that question, the disciples had asked for glory and honor and power. Bartimaeus cries out for mercy. So what Mark wants to, to see, I think, is that Bartimaeus 
is not as blind as the disciples. But there's another critical point in this conversation that makes this story unique and that sets Bartimaeus apart from everyone else Jesus healed. And here, the ESV, the English Standard Version, lets us down. Because it says that Bartimaeus answered Jesus, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. That's not a faithful translation of the Greek word Bartimaeus used to address Jesus. He said, Rabboni, not Rabbi. Rabboni, let me recover my sight. The difference is subtle but significant. Rabbi means teacher or master. Rabboni means my Lord and my master. So why does Mark put this story here? He's telling us how we should come to Jesus in stark contrast to the self-centered arrogance of the apostles who couldn't recognize their own blindness. We should come to Jesus just as Bartimaeus did. Jesus, son of David, you are the Messiah, the son of God. Rabboni my Lord and Master. Have mercy on me. Lord, give me eyes to see. Deliver me from this darkness. I'd like to close with two postscripts from this phenomenal text. Throughout his three-year ministry, Jesus healed countless people. You know that from reading the text. And we read only about only a fraction of those healing encounters in the gospel narratives. There are hundreds that we know nothing about. But have you ever noticed that we don't know the names of any other person Jesus healed? We know that Lazarus was raised from the dead, and we know that Mary Magdalene had been delivered from a demon. But all the other recipients of Jesus' healing are entirely anonymous except for Bartimaeus. So why does Mark tell us his name? This is pure conjecture on my part, but I think Bartimaeus at that point was a well-known member of the Lord's church. I think Mark named him because everyone reading this would have known him. Everyone in the church knew him or knew of him. But more important, I think Mark wanted us to know his name because Bartimaeus, more than any other, showed us how we should approach our Lord Jesus. And the second postscript is this. It's easy for us to be hard on those disciples with all their failures, their misconceptions and ignorance and human sinfulness were certainly on full display here in this text. But since every one of us can see ourselves in the disciples' failures, we have the courage and honesty to look closely at our own lives, it's good to remember what God did in their lives after the events of this story. Did they drink the cup of suffering that Jesus predicted? Yes. Yes, they did, and they remained faithful to their master. James, as you know, was the first of the apostles to lay down his life for the cause of Christ. And we know that John was exiled for his faith and he suffered greatly um, for the sake of the Lord's church. And we know this. As we just read in this story, as a young man, John came to Jesus asking for glory and honor. As an old man, 
after he had drunk from the cup of suffering Jesus promised, he wrote these words that tell us he finally got the message and that he wanted to pass it on to the church that he loved. In 1 John 3.16, he's writing about his beloved rabbi Jesus when he says, he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John finally got it. And I pray that we will too.